If you turn in your Bibles, we finally made it. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Some 18 months ago, we started these two letters that Paul wrote to this troubled church. And now we find his concluding words. We find a benediction to this church that if you had read and taken out the word Corinth and put in Los Angeles, uh, maybe you, you would have probably not missed much. Amen? You know, sometimes I think that we think that because things in our world seem to be progressing towards uh, their conclusion, which they are, that somehow man has found out some new way to sin. No, we've just found out new ways to do old sins. We've created more creative ways, if you will, to sin, but they're the same basic sins that have plagued mankind since the beginning. Paul has spent two letters addressing them. He's going to make a third trip. He's already made two trips to this troubled church. He's spoken into their lives over and over and over again. And he concludes with a word of warning and then some encouragement. And and sometimes we look at these passages where the Bible is being direct with us. And I think we have a tendency almost to turn it off because maybe at that moment in time, Uh, We're not engaged in those types of behaviors or maybe the subject matter is a little difficult in light of the the life that we happen to be living at the moment. But I want to strongly encourage you to not turn your mind off, your heart off to this warning. And I will tell you and be the first one to admit that it may not be for you tonight, but it may be for somebody else that you know. It may be for somebody in your life that has not even yet appeared. It might be for some brother, some sister down the road, even years from now, when you need to stand strong in the truth. When you need to take up the position that the Apostle Paul takes in this passage at the end, a position of strength. There's time for us to be gentle, very loving and kind. We should never not be gentle in its truest sense, but there are times when we want to be overtly gentle. There are times for us to be covertly gentle. And there are times for us to speak directly to the issue in people's lives. And so as you hear this final chapter, as Paul speaks these words. He looks back towards chapter 12, really for the subject matter as he concludes, which was sexual sin. And so he speaks in these final words some very strong things. But you can see the heart of a pastor, the heart of a man who's broken over the lack of repentance who's actually reached that place where it's looked like you've left me no choice but speak directly to this issue. And in talking with our pastoral staff, my friends, co-laborers in ministry here, very often we get backed into corners with people. You know, there's only so many times and so many verses that address, that address certain subjects in Scripture. When we're dealing with marriage, very often we'll go to Ephesians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the latter part, and 1 Corinthians 7. We'll deal with those situations as they come up, but people don't want to hear. They don't want to hear the truth. And there comes a point in time where it's just, look, this is what the Bible says. And so it's incumbent upon you as someone who hears it to do it, to be a doer of the word. And that's really the context here as Paul now concludes the second letter that he writes to the church at Corinth. Would you pray with me and ask that the Lord would speak to us again through his word. Father, we we have come as your children with open hands and hearts, our, our ears inclined towards heaven hear what the Spirit would say, and Lord, admittedly, for me personally, these uh, two letters, by the time we come to the end, they seem 
so long and so difficult at times that even I have been tempted to turn my heart at least to the soft side and just allow this to glance off. And Lord, I would pray that none of us would be guilty of failing to hear what the Spirit would have to say to us as your church tonight. And so thank you for your word when its encouragement is strong. When you issue warnings, you do so for a reason. And so we pray that whether it's for us tonight individually, whether it's us corporately, or whether it's for future use, Lord, that we hear these words. Would you cause us to hear with hearts that are open to your instruction. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Verse 1, 2 Corinthians 13, as we conclude the second letter. This will be the third time that I'm coming to you. And by the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. And remember that the Apostle Paul always sought to have biblical reasoning for why he did what he did the way he did it. And so he's making a reference here, just in case someone was listening from a more Jewish perspective, the perspective of the law, look, I didn't come to you once, I didn't come to you twice, this was not something that was just kind of you guys messed with and I'm overreacting to it, this was so serious, I've already come to you twice and I'm about to come to you a third time. It's a serious issue. It's not just something that people were struggling with a tad bit. This was not somebody who slipped up and did something one time. He, he is dealing once again with a church that was habitually found doing the things that a church shouldn't do. And it's important for us to put that into the mix when listening to these words. Because there are times when we should not take this tact. If you're going the first time to somebody, if you're addressing something, you, you see something in someone's life and you care for them deeply, which the Apostle Paul does for the church at Corinth, you want to love on them by telling them truth. The first time, you don't take out the holy hammer of the Bible and bash them in the forehead with it. You, you don't need to speak strongly to that person. When it's, when it's an initial address, it can be very soft and very kind and try and get to the bottom of maybe why those things are as they are. But that is not the case here. This is one of those times where he's like, you want it, you got it. He, he's going to be strong. And so he says, verse two, I've told you before, and foretell as if I were present the second time. I've already been there twice. I already told you what was going to happen. Nothing has changed. You know, when you repeat scriptures over and over and over again to people, you, you can look them in the eye and go, look, it's not going to be any different this time. I'm going to tell you the same thing. You came to me two years ago. I told you if you continue to live in sin with your boyfriend or your girlfriend that this was going to happen. I told you it was sin then. It's still sin today. You've continued sinning. You're not going to get a different answer out of me today. You understand what I'm saying? This is the type of thing that we must stand strong on. And here's why. Because when we change our tune on what the Bible says because we get tired of talking to people, then they believe that it was not truth the first time. We have to stand on the truth. We can't waver from it. So in these issues in our society where God has an opinion and he has spoken very clearly on them, we need to have that opinion from start of conversation to the final edict. We have to be consistent. And now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before. He says, look, this is not a new thing. This is an old thing. This has been going on for a long time. You're still unrepentant of it and to all the rest. And now he says it. If I come again, I will not spare. Look, I'm not coming to rehash the issue again. I'm not going to change my tune. I refuse to waver. I spoke to you the truth the first time, and this time I'm going to let you have it between the eyes. And I'm paraphrasing, but it's what it really says. I'm not going to spare. 
I'm going to pull out all the stops. Paul says, look, I tried being kind and gentle and nice and and non-confrontational would be a good word. I tried just simply saying, look, this is not okay with God. Let's change the way we're going. But they wouldn't have it. And since you seek proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak towards you, but mighty in you, he says, look, the same spirit that's in you is in me. And the same spirit is speaking to you. You know, it's amazing to me how many times when I address things in people's lives and I've spoken to them multiple times, they will say something to the effect, I already know what the Bible says. It is mind-boggling to me. I already know what the Bible says. As if I'm supposed to be put off by that. And I look at him, I go, you already know what it says. What do you think I'm going to say next? Then do it. I'm not going to tell you you get a free pass. This is not a monopoly game to where you get out of jail free card. This is I'm going to tell you the same thing that I've told you before, except this time it's going to be really strong. It's like, look, if you keep going down this path, there is definite difficulty coming your way. For though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. Can I tell you, the cross was no mistake. It was not some alternate universe plan where God saw his only begotten son being mistreated. He says, oh no, I have to do something about this. It was the plan from the beginning. He was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world was ever laid. It was always the plan that Jesus would die. So people looked at his death and said, wow, some kind of Messiah that is. Don't mistake the meekness of the cross of Christ for weakness on the part of God's power. That is a very dangerous thing to do. God's power is actually shown at its brightest and best in the death of Jesus Christ, God's own son. That's where we see it in its absolute perfection. Because on one hand, God allowed mankind to do to his son the unthinkable, and God restrained the power to destroy the entire world at that moment. But man's paid a terrible price for that sin. And it's ongoing to this day. But the answer is to repent, to turn from those things. It's always been repent and turn from those things and turn towards the Lord. So God did not change his mind on any of these things that Paul's been addressing. He simply said, don't mistake humility and meekness for weakness. There's still power in the name of Jesus. Amen? Examine yourselves. Now I want you to notice the next five verses, this focus on our part, your part, my part, the world's part, the church's part, on checking out where you are yourself. You see, sometimes people like to misquote the words of Jesus there in Matthew 7. And, oh, don't judge me, bro. Don't judge me. And you got no right to judge me. Now, that isn't what it says. It says, don't be a hypocrite. It says, if you're going to judge, if you're going to look at someone else's life, you better not have any planks in your own eye. You need to be clear-sighted, keen-visioned. You need to be able to say, look, I don't have that problem. And so when I look at these things, I see it very clearly. And so to that end, Paul says, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. In other words, take the fruit, take a stock of the fruit of your own life. They can measure out the things that are coming out of you because if you are a believer, then what should follow as you are a believer are good works. Amen? That is the entirety of James' message to the church in chapters 1 and 2 if you want to look at it that way. I will show you my faith by my works. You cannot divest yourself of good works if you are a person of faith. It's an impossibility. The Bible clearly says, That out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What you do with your hands is a direct result of who you are in your heart. 
And so if you don't have anything good coming out of your life, Paul's saying, look, check your own life, look at it, and go, that's not of God, or that is of God. And if you can say that it is of God, then you have a clear conscience. But if you can look at those things and go, you know, God told me not to do that, and I shouldn't be doing that, but I'm doing that, then you're supposed to go, wow, I examined myself, and I found myself guilty of something I needed to repent of. I needed to change. So often we overemphasize the grace that we have that's free in this way. It, it does not free us to live as we please. It frees us to live godly in Christ Jesus. Do you understand what I'm saying? And the reason I'm saying that is this passage makes no sense if there is nothing for you to do. If there is no way for you to live, then you can toss this whole chapter out. Because Paul is going to emphasize, look, you should check out your own life. Test yourselves, he says. Do you not know yourself that Jesus Christ is in you? You understand what he's saying? He's saying, look, the Holy Spirit in you should be the convictor of sin and of righteousness. And so when you look at your own life and you measure the fruit of your own life, you should go yes and amen to what's happening with you. So if you're bitter, mean-spirited, angry, if you're in as these people were, sexual sin, if you're a drunkard, if you're a doper, if you're a thief, if you're a liar, if you're doing these things which you're not supposed to be doing as a child of God, it should strike a chord in this particular way that you look at that and go, man, this is the wrong thing for me to be doing as a child of God. That's not to be a legalist, by the way. That's to be a realist. That's why as we finish up the book of Galatians, it's so important to have both lists. You have here's what the flesh looks like and here's what the spirit looks like. And if the stuff coming out of us looks like the flesh, we're supposed to go, wow, a few things need to change because this is in the wrong list. This is the stuff that shouldn't be in my life and I have a bunch of it. And this is the stuff that should be in my life and I don't have any of it. Remember how I started. Maybe for many of you, this is not for you tonight. It's for somebody else. For some of you, this is for you tonight. It's for you to look at your own life and start doing some healthy introspection. Amen? That is a great word. Because if you'll do the introspection, you will survive the inspection. Amen? Because when the Lord looks from the outside, if you've already looked on the inside and said, yes, Lord, I'm changing that, as Paul will say, then there's nothing to fear about what other people are going to see and say. But if you don't do the introspection, then you need to fear the inspection later. So be clear on this. The child of God should stand up to the test. Now, here's the good news. Grace covers the failures, amen? It does, it covers the failures, but they're supposed to be failures and they're supposed to be very infrequent. They're not supposed to be ways of life. So he says, look, test yourselves. Look at your own life. See what kind of fruit's coming out of it. Know for yourself that Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified. And I want to give you another word there. You can write it. If you happen to have a King James or a newer version, it may say disqualified, but it's really the word apostate or reprobate. It's far more than you're just a little off. It means you're way off. You're so far off as to not be on. How's that for you? Disqualified means you're not in. You're out. It means that you have been doing things for so long, so hard, that there is no evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in your life. And you're saying, well, Jeff, what about the grace? Give me the grace back. Where's the grace, guy? Come on, please. Grace is very costly to God. Monumentally costly. And so while it is a free gift, it should never be tarnished or sullied. And so he says, look, examine yourselves, 
See whether you're of the faith. Test yourself. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are reprobate. You've been deceiving yourself. You've been calling yourself a Christian, but there's not an ounce of fruit in your life that is indicative of someone who loves the Lord. Now, before any of you get scared, maybe there's some that should be scared. It's not talking about sinless perfection. It's talking about someone whose life is largely marked by the works of the flesh. You have zero assurance you're actually a child of God. So don't live that way. Amen? He's not trying to give us a, a, a lack of assurance. He's trying to say, look, the surest you will ever be is when you are the most like Jesus. Amen? If I want to be absolutely certain I'm a child of God, guess what I want to do? I want to absolutely act like a child of God. I want to walk like a child of God and talk like a child of God and, and do the things a child of God would do. I do not want to wander around going, well, I can just do anything I want. So get this. I know it's strong. It finishes good. Just hang on. But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. He's saying, look, you, you can look at my life. It's not perfect. This is Paul who wrote Romans 6 and 7. Amen? Those things which I will to do, I do not do. And those things which I will not to do, these very things I do. I got a war going on inside of me. Who will deliver me from this body of death? That Paul. So he's not talking about sinless perfection. He's talking about there being so much evidence to the contrary of a child of God that one must question oneself whether one is a child of God or not. That's you looking in, not me looking from the outside. That's you yourself having that confidence that you're a child of God. And now I pray to God that you will do no evil. Not that we should appear approved. He's saying, look, this isn't about me. This is not me getting my way. This is you having assurance that you're one of God's kids. But that you should do what is honorable. And that word honorable means righteous or holy. It means honorable to the Lord. That you should live a life that's honorable to God. Though we may seem disqualified. He's saying, look, don't look at me, look at yourself. Don't look at my life, look at your life. This is one of the great dangers of Christendom. We get out our sin sniffers and we wander around looking at everyone else's life. Oh, did you see that? Oh, man, her skirt was at least an inch over her knee. Harlot! (laughs) We are the weirdest people on earth. We like wander around. It's like, oh, did you see that guy? You know, he had a tat on there. I think it looked like a skull. That's the devil's sign. We get our little sin sniffer. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, it's really going off. And Paul's reminding us, look, stop looking at other people. You're going to have enough of a job checking out your own junk. Just look at your own life. Because if you start there, I'm going to give you a little secret, you're going to have plenty to do. You're going to look at your own life and go, you know what, I can stand some improvement in that area. So be careful. Do what's honorable. Even if we look like we're disqualified, you do what's right. For we can do nothing against the truth. But for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. He says, look, I I just want you to know the truth. And this we also pray. That you may be made complete. How did James remind us that we're complete? The testing of our faith. Amen? When you go through stuff and you do the right thing, you come out doing what God wants you to do, that's assurance to us. It's like the testing of my faith leaves me complete and lacking nothing. And so he's saying, look, when you look inward, 
and you pass the test, your assurance grows. When I look at my own life and go, you know what? I used to be like this, but I'm not like that anymore. Now, I'm not perfectly the way I should be, but I'm not like that anymore. That gives me assurance that I'm actually going the right direction. I am a child of God. The Spirit's at work in me. But if I don't look one iota different than the day I got saved, and I'm still doing the exact same things that I got saved and redeemed from doing, there has been no renewing of my mind, and I keep walking in the same way. That's someone who habitually practices sin, which is what he said then that person is supposed to go, wow, I I need to change some things in me. And that person starts to get settled in in the right place. They start looking at their own life going, wow, you know, I need to change. And we do. And therefore, I write these things being absent. He says, I want to just write these things to you. Why? Lest being present i should use sharpness he says i don't want to come and have to have this conversation with you again according to the authority with which the lord has given me for edification and not for destruction you see paul's been dealing with this over and over and over again immorality impurity uncleanness immodesty lasciviousness he just named all these issues that they had with their flesh and he says you know this is the message jesus spoke of this is the thing that comes out of the unregenerate heart that's why jesus there as he spoke those things in matthew's gospel he said look it's not what's on the outside that defiles a man it's what on the inside that defiles a man and so the picture that we're getting here for us is that we can't blame everything on the sexualization of our culture. We can't blame everything on the indecency that's on the TV or in movies or in written works of literature. We can't say, it's just that person tempted me. We have to start looking inward and saying, Lord, what am I doing with that thought? What am, am I going to take every thought captive or am I going to run with the things that I shouldn't run with? And so Paul's reminding us, look, inside first. Deal with you. Take a look at your own stuff first. And so he warns them. And they should listen well. He says, look, man, I'm coming again. You may not believe it. You may not like it. And the things I shared with you before, they're still in your heart they're still in your mind and so he begins with this series of warnings he says look listen up i want to remind all of us that god is faithful to keep sending the message you know it's amazing to me how many times when i talk to people about somebody that that's something in their life that's finally overtaken them that they will describe to me a years-long history of god being faithful They'll name the friends, they'll name the time, they'll name the place that somebody confronted them. They'll tell me, yeah, so-and-so already said that. And then so-and-so already said that. And, And somebody else sent me a book on it. Somebody else sent me a movie on it. God sent me a vision and a dream on it. I read about it in the Bible, but, you know, I just didn't do it. God's faithful to continue to send messages to us how we need to listen to them so when you're dealing with people in your own life whether it's you or someone else that's not hearing you need to start turning up the severity of what you're saying so that you act like the lord acts in our lives he doesn't start out by whacking us but make no mistake he will eventually whack you anybody in here been whacked by god oh yeah you see, he starts out as he did with Pharaoh. It's just kind of like some flies. And you know, it's like, oh, man, this is horrible. I was like, wow, that's kind of weird, a river of blood. Anybody been eating these frogs that are hopping all over the place? It's like, wow, how, how, somebody got hit by a meteor yesterday. What was that all about? That's the way God works. He tries the lightest measure first. 
And when he concludes, he will go as far as taking you out. Oh, Jeff, you didn't say that, did you? Yes, I did. Because sometimes we will get to those places in our lives where it would be better for us to be taken out ourselves than we take out a bunch of others with us. And so make no mistake, that's always in God's book. Someplace in the back pages. I have a little list in the back of my Bible. You guys can't see it right now, but if I was to hold it up, you'll see there's a whole bunch of scriptures in there. That's like my emergency scriptures. And when people don't listen, it's like, okay. It's like, "Mm, that. Why? Because some people, that's all you got left. Don't make God get that way with you. And don't let the Lord not have a voice to keep somebody from getting there. And you can be that voice. He's basically saying, look, here's what's up. You guys need to quit this stuff right now. No more veiled threats. No more indecisiveness. He's just simply going to say, look, don't do this. I want to point you to something. I was kind of studying this afternoon. I just jotted down a few examples that I think all of us are familiar with. They were speaking against the Apostle Paul. Basically, this church was going, oh, that Paul. No, he's just trying to kill our fun. I mean, obviously he hasn't been to the barbecue house at the Temple of Diana. You know, it's like, I mean, they got some good meat up there. Yeah, it's prostitutes and you know, a few other things. but and, and so they're grumbling against this correction. You remember what happened to God's chosen people when they murmured and grumbled against Moses? Well, God listened for a while. And then in Numbers 14, we find that he gave a death sentence to absolutely every person that was over the age of 21 for complaining against God's witness in this world. Came to a head again in the rebellion of Korah, Dathan, Abraham. It ended with the death of all of their rebellious kind. That still didn't stop them. They kept on murmuring. They kept on complaining. By the time you get to the end of Numbers chapter 15, 14,750 more people died of the plague. You would think that would have been enough. There's a reason I'm telling you this. We are prone to not listen. And we're prone to not let things that have happened to other people change the way we think and act. Well, that won't happen to me. Because I'm way more holy than they are. I'm a holy complainer and grumbler against God. And so my grumbling and complaining and lack of holiness in my life isn't as bad as theirs is. The rebellion finally came to a head in Numbers chapter 21. And it was so bad that the entire encampment of the children of Israel was being attacked by fiery serpents. All of them. Maybe as many as a couple of million people. However many there were in the wilderness. It is a very, very perilous thing to grumble against the word of the Lord. That's why I'm sharing that with you. So you may not like what the Bible says about homosexuality. You may not like what it says about morality. You may not like what it says about anger or bitterness or hatred or envy or strife or vanity or gluttony. But the fact of the matter is, it says it. And the grumbler against the truth of the word of God always gets in trouble because God loves us. His word is truth. We're to accept it as truth. And when we don't accept it as truth and we just grumble, God has to turn up the heat. So I'm not going to let you intentionally 
do something that's going to harm you, so I'm going to keep turning up the heat until you get it. So be careful. And again, remind yourself that I said this may not be for you tonight, but it may be for somebody that you know that's struggling in some area of sinful living that claims the name of Christ that thinks they're the one that gets to grumble against God and tell him he's wrong. God is always going to be right and they will be proven to be the one that's wrong. So turn them back sooner rather than later. Amen? That's the picture. To that end, the cross was no mistake. It looked like the enemy had won. It looked like there had been a defeat. It looked like God was just knocked flat. Even the disciples were stunned by that. They, they, they looked at the events of the cross and, oh man, we're doomed. But actually, when you look at it, it was a monumental victory, amen? You, you see, it looked like God had lost. It looked like God was just going to give up. It looked like God was going to fade out of the picture. It's just like, ah, he's just going to give up on the earth and move away. But Jesus had clearly taken it all in stride on that journey from eternity to eternity. And he had fully undertaken the glory of God. That death was the best thing he could have done. And so for us, as we look at this passage, look, look the, the cross when it was completely accomplished, when you and I sit there and look at the cross in hindsight, Jesus simply dismissed his spirit and the battle was won, amen? Can I tell you that that was foretold in the Old Testament? It's exactly what we're going to be seeing as we go through the book of Isaiah, this incredible book that's the Bible in miniature. 39 chapters that very clearly look like the events of the Old Testament, 27 chapters that very clearly look like the events of the New Testament. That God was speaking to mankind. And the reason this is important is this God told us what he was going to do on the cross. God told us exactly what he was going to do on the cross. And he redeemed us back from sin and death. He paid the price so that we didn't any longer have to die our own death and pay the, our own price for our own sin. But he didn't just say, hey, you can keep doing what you want to do. He paid for us so that we could now live for him. And so that victory on the cross takes and puts you and I in the place of indebtedness to the Savior. And so now I want to look like I'm grateful for the salvation that I have. I'm thankful that he redeemed me. I, I am honestly grateful to God that he bought me back from my previous existence in sin and death. And so it should come out in my living. I should be looking at my life and going, Lord, my life looks more like you now. That was a gift to you and I. How, how much more should we give a gift back to the Lord that says, thank you. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for purchasing my, my wretched life. I was in, in debt. I was enslaved to my sinful nature. I had no way to get out. And Jesus, you paid the price for my sin. The natural result of a right-thinking person is to give that person everything. That's why we love the Lord the way we love him. That's why we do what we do. Not because I'm going to prove I'm saved or earn my salvation. It's gratefulness. I am so grateful for what the Lord's done in my life. It's like, Lord, you can have me. I'll gladly trade what I used to be for what I am today. Paul gives us finally some sound advice. And he'll give us some encouraging truths to live by. We shouldn't underestimate the, the message that we find in our Bibles. It's the message of Jesus. 
and we shouldn't underestimate his messengers, which we would call the saints of the Old Testament, the prophets. We would call it the law. We would call it the Old and the New Testament. We would call it the Bible. For you and I, it's very easy to test and see how we're doing with the Lord. We grab this, and we go, yep, I'm doing that. Nope, I'm not doing that. It's not that complex. Part of the reason that I believe we have the scriptures is so that we have a basic instruction manual before we leave earth. Amen? B-I-B-L-E. It's the basic instruction manual before we leave earth. We can look at it and go, I'm supposed to be doing that and I'm not supposed to be doing this. That doesn't mean that we run around with a pencil all the time going, wow, I got you know 17 right today and four wrong. But we can absolutely look at our lives and go, man, I'm doing better today than I was yesterday. We don't want to be reprobates. We, we don't want to be disqualified. We do not want to be those who are apostate. I don't ever want to look at my life and go, man, I, I'm, I'm out of chemos. I'm rejected. By the way, that's the word that Jesus used when he separates out the sheep and the goats in the last day. Those that are akademos, disqualified, are the ones that go away to eternal damnation. So it's pretty clear the Apostle Paul is saying, look, you should test yourself to see whether you look like you're one of God's kids or whether you don't look like you're one of God's kids. That way you don't have to worry about what other people think. And the single construct that he's using here is, are you a doer of the word? Or are you looking at your life going, yeah, I'm doing what God wants me to do. I'm not reprobating. So as Paul addresses that there in Romans chapter 1, there's an interesting thing that he says at the end of Romans chapter 1. It's contained in verse 32. And talking about those people, he says, those who do not know the Lord, they not only do the things that those people do, but they approve of the things that those people do. They can be found on the wrong side of even the argument. In other words, they're arguing for the sin. Do you understand what I'm saying? Read it for yourself when you get home. The child of God should never argue for sin. The child of God should never be against God's word on sin. So when God has an opinion about something, that is also the child of God's opinion on that same subject. So with regard to the death of innocence, God has an opinion on that. We have God's opinion on that. With lying, we hold God's opinion on lying, thievery, murder, adultery, all these sins that Paul's mentioned. We hold God's opinion because God is going to hold his righteous children to the standard that he established, not the standard the world holds. And so be careful because it is a slippery slope when you start agreeing with the world on issues of sin where the Bible is clear. Because that little bit of compromise causes you to compromise in other areas. And so when you find people that, that don't hold a biblical view on abortion, the biblical view is God creates all life. That from his perspective, all life begins at conception. Read the 139th Psalm. That'll answer that question for you. That he knew them while they were still in their mother's womb. You see, God has an opinion on that. And as the church, we're supposed to hold that opinion. God's the one that said marriage is between a man and a woman, and always between a man and a woman, and that has always condemned all homosexual behavior. So when people come along and say, well, we should change our opinion, 
the Bible says, no, you not only shouldn't change your opinion, you should actually be against people who are trying to get you to change your opinion. You should look at them and say, I can't go there. This is what the Bible says. And if I don't believe what God said on that subject, why would I believe him on what he said about grace? Or that I'm saved by faith. If I can't trust him with far less meaningful things, like some issue of sin, why would I ever trust him with the eternal things? And so Romans 1.32 says, I hold God's opinion on all things where God has an opinion. And that's a paraphrase. We have to do this, family. Otherwise, we get into some places where we get our faith so twisted and tied up in knots that you will actually not know yourself. You won't pass that test of looking at yourself and going, well, I, I'm, I'm a child of God, and here's why. Because you will hold an opinion that God doesn't hold about some issue of life and living. Paul says there in verse, I I pray that you do no evil. I pray you do no evil. How much evil? Zero. None. We don't want to seem disqualified. One of the most interesting characters to me in all of the Old Testament is Jonah. Because Jonah very clearly and obviously not only believes God, But he believes God so strongly that he's actually afraid God is going to save the Ninevites. Isn't that crazy to you? It's like he so powerfully believes in God's grace and his mercy towards sinful mankind that he is going to not do what he's been told to do because he's afraid they'll get saved and not damned. That's mind-boggling to me. But you know what else it is? It shows you exactly how hard our hearts can become. It shows me how hard my heart can become. I can know the truth. I can even acknowledge that it is true and still not do what it says. And you know why we know that? Because Jonah said, I ain't going. I'm going to Tarshish. Forget it. I'm not preaching to the Ninevites, so get saved. He goes the other way. Did God turn up the heat on Jonah? I think he did. Just huck me overboard, man, it's me. Next thing he knows, he's whale barf. Skin's hanging off of him. We don't know what he looked like. But he grumbled. He complained. He whined against the truth of God. He knew it was true, refused to do it. I want no part of that life myself, personally. None. So when God tells me to do something, guess what? I'm going to do my best to do that. Even if I don't like it. Even if I might say, because the world says so, and maybe I believe some of what the world says. I think that's unfair. I have learned to take God at his word. And I look at it this way. And maybe this will help you. I don't know how many of you are in that stage of life to where, you know, you realize you have a reputation. And as you get older, it's kind of like, ah, who really cares? I just want people to know my character. So I I want them to know the internal things. You stop caring about what you look like. You know, you just wear sweatpants and I don't care if I have Velcro shoes. I just don't care what you think. Doesn't matter to me. But what comes with that is this, as you get older, you see the doctor a lot more and they're always telling you, you need to take this pill. But here's what the doctor is trying to do. The doctor's trying to give you a pill so he doesn't have to cut something out of you. The doctor is trying to save you from something far worse, a surgery. He's saying, look, you you should take this cholesterol, this statin drug, 
to lower your cholesterol. Otherwise, you're going to end up having some stents. Matter of fact, we're going to have to crack your chest and give you a bypass. He's offering you a pill. The pill's like, oh, i got to take that every day? It's like, really? Do you know how busy I am? I mean, that's going to take four seconds. I mean, i got stuff to do in the morning. And so God, being the faithful physician of your heart, is saying, look, would you take these spiritual statin drugs and let's cleanse all this plaque out of your spiritual arteries and let's make sure that the Spirit's blood is pumping through your veins the way it's supposed to. Otherwise, we're going to have to take your heart out of your chest and replumb it. How many of you in that situation I just described, you're going to go into your cardiologist and say, I'd rather have open heart surgery. There's not one of you in this room who are going to make that choice. Nobody in here is going to willingly embark on a path that you know is going to put you on a table someday with your heart out of your chest and them taking veins out of your legs so that they can replumb your heart. Nobody is going to make that decision. But that is exactly what happens when we embark on a life that is contrary to the instructions of the Father. We say, no, I'd rather have surgery. I'd rather have you cut me open and rip me apart and shred me and pull parts out and me be limping and gimpy and not be able to do anything rather than take a little pill to swallow so that you can get rid of some of that pride and admit that God's right and you're wrong. So I want to just encourage you. God's not trying to spoil your fun. He's not trying to ruin your day by getting you to take a Jesus pill in the morning. He's trying to keep you from the operating table later. And so listen to his voice. And when he speaks by his word, that is his instruction to you for you to change your actions and your thoughts on the matter. To do what we call repent, to turn around and go the other way, to change your mind in such a way it shapes your actions. And so he's really saying, do you want surgery? you want to take a pill? I want to take the pill. He gives us this incredible sound advice. He gives us some truths. He says, look, I want this to be for edification for you. I want to build you up. I haven't come to knock you down. I've come to build you up. But in order to do that, you've got to help. You've got to listen. You've got to do. I can come as a a judge. I can bring the divine power and authority. But if you do what's right, I don't even need that power or authority. You'll already go the right direction. And he says, look, why don't we just go the right direction? Why don't we just do what the Lord says? It's not that hard. I think if you talk to anybody that's walked with the Lord for any significant length of time in their lives, and if you ask them, are they missing anything the world has to offer because they're walking with Jesus, you're going to get a resounding, are you kidding me? There's nothing this world has to offer that I'm missing because I'm walking with Jesus. But there are infinite numbers of things that someone who does not know the Lord that's walking in this world for their own life, will, and way, there are infinite things they're missing, and the chief among them is eternity with the Lord. So so I'm not missing anything. Somebody asked you, oh, you know, a Christian life, man, it's got to be boring. I said, are you kidding me? I get to do eternal things every day. What do you get to do? You know, check and see who has the best price on Budweiser? It's like, seriously, that's really cool? You know, your whole life revolves around things that are meaningless and purposeless? 
My whole life revolves around the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the great I am. The one who was and is and is to come. The one who will be here after we're gone. Amen? So, call me crazy, but I'm taking the eternal things over the temporal stuff. So, Paul ends with a benediction. We'll do the same thing. Verse 11, finally, brethren. And remember who he's talking to. He said brethren. That's brothers and sisters in Christ. He's writing to the church. Be complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And to all the saints, they greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God. Communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. He emphasizes one last time the Trinity. He emphasizes one last time the grace of God. He emphasizes the important things, the love of God. He doesn't end on a note of, well, you better do it or else. He ends as we should end. In the gracious hands of a God who loves us. Reminded that we're supposed to be in communion with the Holy Spirit. Think about it for a second. We are literally in communion with the Holy Spirit. That means tight-knit fellowship. When we say communion, it's actually the Greek word koinonia. And it means to have the closest kind of fellowship available. Hearts knit, minds knit, actions knit together. Being of one accord is another way to actually look at it. It's as if we've been bound together as a single rope. Having spent a a vast majority of my life as as a mountaineer rock climber, I can tell you one of the things that you can't see about climbing rope is what's on the inside of it. You cut through it, you'll see all the hundreds of strands that make that rope up. There's tight koinonia and when it's together it's unbreakable but if we cut it apart if we shred it if we abrade it on a rock someplace it it may snap under the pressure and so the apostle paul is saying make sure that you're of one accord that you're together with the holy spirit that you're bound the sheath is intact the love is intact so that when you look at your life There's no potential for you to have a disastrous fall. You're bound together with the Holy Spirit. The love of God is in you in such a way that you can't do without it. That you look at the body of Christ as essential, that it's actually something you're a part of. It's not something that they are, it's something that we are. Amen? In this very competitive church in Corinth... They were held together, really, I believe, miraculously by the love of God. It wasn't just human talents or skill. It wasn't programs that didn't make up their church and it doesn't make up our church. Those things are a result of the church actually being what it's supposed to be. When we are what we're supposed to be, we will do the things that God's called us to do. But if we are not what God's called us to be, we will never be able to accomplish what God has called us to do. Paul basically said we should be the living benediction. We should be these things. We should be blessed of the Father and blessed of the Son and blessed of the Holy Spirit. We should have the grace of God, the love of God. should be visible in our lives. And when we do, the world looks at who we are and what we are. And they can't judge us. They may have an opinion but they really can't judge us. They can just say, there's something different about those people. And then we just say, yeah, that something is Jesus. Amen? Amen and amen. Let's be that living benediction, that kind of Christian that the world looks at and goes, can't really find a fault with that. Loving, kind, gentle, peaceable. A whole lot like Jesus. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray together. Remind you that Harvest Fest is next week. It's an outreach. 
bring people in your neighborhood. The reason we're doing this is they're going to go out and trick-or-treat anyway. So we would rather have them here where it's completely safe, absolutely controlled, and where they are going to hear the gospel message all night long and Christian music than have them out on the streets where there might be something yucky happen. And so don't mistake why we do it. It's not because we have, you know, some type of uh, arrangement with dentists to destroy all dental hygiene here in the South Bay. No, it really is an outreach so that we can reach the lost with the good news of the gospel. We'll be doing that next Thursday night. And then the following Thursday, we start the amazing book of Isaiah. So get ready for an incredible journey through that my favorite book in the Old Testament, and I think it was the Apostle Paul's and Jesus' most quoted book. So uh, looking forward to that time. Father, thank you. Thank you for the challenges of these two letters that uh, you penned by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul. And we pray, Lord, these lessons, some of them have been hard. And we confess that to you. And we pray that you'd help us with the things that are difficult, the things that maybe have pierced some of our thinking, caused us to have to reevaluate Lord, as the apostle said tonight, we need to check inside and see what's going on under the hood. We need to be reminded to take the the pill now so we don't have to have the surgery later. Pray that you would bless us, Lord. Use us as your church for your kingdom purposes. Lord, there are tens and hundreds of thousands of people here in the South Bay that need the truth of the gospel. And Lord, let it begin here. Judgment begins in the house of God. Revival begins in the house of the house of the Lord. And so we, we ask you to do that with us. Revive our own hearts so that we can accomplish your purposes. Bless us as a church. Continue to use us for your glory. Anoint us, Lord, for what's ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.